So um, if you need a Bible, I assume most everybody here does. We have Bibles back there. You can grab one, follow along. Um, in Isaiah uh, 34, we see the judgment of nations. And the Lord is going to concentrate as he addresses this on particularly Edom, but um, he makes a statement in verse 2, you know, indignation of the Lord is against all nations. This uh, prophecy reaches far and wide in what it is that the Lord has to say. It has its, you know, local fulfillment in time when the Lord said it uh, to the people and the surrounding nations, but many things about it uh, reach all the way to the end of uh, you know this current age we're living in, the age of man. And uh, there are some really uh, big things uh, in it for us to examine. So to begin with, in Isaiah 34, verse 1, he says, Come near, you nations, to hear and heed, you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all the things that come forth from it. Now, the key word there for me is the word heed. You know, come near you nations and hear and heed. That's the idea of heeding or, or, or hearing with understanding and obedience. It, it isn't just the idea of, oh, I've heard that. I've read that. I've seen that. You know, it's along the lines of what is recorded in the book of James when he says that we must be doers of the word, not hearers, only deceiving ourselves. So when God puts this forward, it's a challenge, and it's it's kind of unique. Uh, we see it other places, but he, you know, he calls for the nations, plural. This isn't a message to just his people. Uh, he, he then goes on, you know, uh, let the earth hear. So, you know, far and wide, whoever may be witness to this message, take heed, listen to the point of understanding and obedience, you know, the, the world and all that come forth from it. Verse 2, for the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Now, he's speaking in past tense, but the idea is that this is going to take place in the future. It's just so sure that he can speak of it as though it's already taken place. You know, the idea of, you know, looking at someone who's alive and well and saying, you're a dead man. You know, the, the threat is full force, and it's coming from God. You know, I've used the examples recently of, you know, if you had Mike Tyson threaten you, that, you know, any other number of people might be intimidating. If, if Mike Tyson is going to pound your head in, I mean, if you know he's serious about the threat, you're going to shake in your This is God. This is as serious as it possibly gets. God is announcing that he's opposed to humanity. That all of their wicked plans, those that are opposed to him, you know, he's ready for it. He, he's come to the place where he's ready to do battle with them. And this isn't an unprovoked thing. God hasn't, you know, slipped in his character. Uh, this isn't something that, you know, he's come to the place where he just can't stand anymore and he's finally just going to throw everything down and go after the people that have made him angry. This is you know, the idea of the loving, merciful God has seen the sin and the debauchery and the personal attacks upon himself, including the death of Jesus, his son, whom he sent to save the world, and he's come to the end of the judgment, and now the earth is going to ex experience his wrath. 
where he moves to an explanation is into uh, you know the valley of Armageddon, the the final battle. Um, you know the cataclysmic wars are described here between humanity and God. Now, as as absurd a concept as that sounds, you know, like the human race would ever go to war against God. Like that's just dumb. Humanity is literally going to do it, and I can see the precursory reasons in our culture and in the world right now. Um, we are constantly hearing this science fiction message of how, and it's just science fiction, okay, uh, how aliens are going to come from another planet. And, and there are two forms, okay? There, there's some gray in between, and I get that, but there are two very prominent messages. One is that aliens are going to come from another planet and they're going to be especially wise and especially beneficial to the human race. And they're just going to lend us all kinds of wonderful things. Okay. And then the other side of the message is that there's an invading army of aliens that are going to come from another planet. And, and it's interesting to me how that invading army is going to steal a huge portion of humanity off from the earth and ferry them away to whatever terrible purposes that group has. So if you you know view that weirdness through the biblical lens and line it up with the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back, and he is going to take a massive portion of humanity off from this earth. And all of the earth is going to witness that take place. And simultaneously, there will be a supernatural leader and seemingly some of his followers that emerge upon planet earth and just provide humanity with supernatural answers to all of their problems particularly, you know, their political problems, and he crushes the world and dominates and rules over them. So, you know, you take that scenario and blend the pictures together. Humanity's being prepped for the idea of some supernatural being comes and steals all of our loved ones, and then we get word that he's coming back. And so now to protect ourselves against his invasive force and the theft of any more of humanity, we should arm ourselves and go to war with him. Stupid. But humanity is stupid. We buy into the dumbest ideas. You know, and what's most remarkable is those we consider the most intelligent among us buy into those ideas more wholeheartedly than a lot of the rest of us. It's really interesting what we're being prepped for. So this idea that God is going to go to war with the nations of the world, it's literal. This isn't some message God is giving us about you should interpret this as, you know, a an allegory or some kind of, you know, picture or symbol. This is a literal thing that is going to take place. And the things that are described here are very literal. So now looking uh, you know, on into the, the indignation of God and uh, the war that's going to occur uh, with God and all the nations in verse 3. Also, their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench, the idea of just being discarded, not, not buried. Just, you know, I mean, every battlefield we've ever had, uh, you know, the human race, uh, the opposing forces take the time to do their best to clean up the battlefield afterwards, bury the dead. You, you can't just leave, you know, untold numbers of dead bodies lying around. You got to do your best to clean up the battlefield. Uh, the death uh, during this period of time is going to be so extensive that it's going to become commonplace to just see mass amounts of people who are dead and unburied. So here, you know, the idea of they're going to just be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. 
Now, a couple of things there. Uh, there have been many battlefields where uh, the number of corpses on the battlefield were so numerous and the decomposition was so thorough that the stench could be smelled for, you know, 10, 20, 30 miles away. Yeah, I mean, you just think about one paper mill here in Maine operating and you can tell when the storm is coming because of the shift of the air and suddenly you can smell the paper mill that's, you know, upwind of you. Um, I read a book by a man who was part of the British SAS and he was hired legally by the Iraqi government to train their special forces in the 80s when Iraq was at war with Iran. And there was a particular occasion where the Iraqi and the Iranian forces clashed in the open desert and fought for the better part of three days. And when they were done, there were 10,000 dead laying on the desert floor. And the massacre was so complete that they had difficulty finding out where everyone was. So they get out there in three days of desert heat and decomposition has set in. And uh, they were saying that at 5,000 feet in the helicopter, they were all getting sick to their stomach from the corpses on the ground. That's just 10,000. Millions dead in Armageddon. A 180-mile-long battlefield. It's going to be amazing what goes on during that time. The mountains shall melt with blood, <laughs> run with blood. There's actually a portion of the language that indicates it, the blood flow may actually cause erosion. Okay, As difficult as that is to imagine, so much blood pouring out, running through the mountains that it would actually wash away sand and dirt. That, you know, that almost seems like hyperbole, like some kind of just trying to make a point or something. Um, it is recorded by Josephus that during the invasion by the Roman Empire, when they massacred the people inside Jerusalem, that the blood flowed through the streets at depth until it had filled the streets and the gutters and flowed into the homes and put out the fires in the fireplaces of some homes. Unfathomable. Listen, it's not just for the graphic content. God's not doing that at all. What he's trying to say to us is, his vow of vengeance against the human race in their outright rebellion against him is that graphic. He's going to carry this out. Consider Revelation chapter 14, verse 20. Speaking of this, says the winepress was trampled outside the city. The blood came up out of the winepress, up to the horse's bridles. So four, four and a half feet high for 1,600 furlongs. So when it says, you know, a time of great bloodshed, you know, the mountains will flow with blood, 1,600 furlongs, that's, that's 180 miles. Brutal, unthinkable massacre is going to take place when humanity tries to go against God. God has every right, having created us and he's going to talk about that verse four all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls down from the vine as the fruit falling from the fig tree look <clears throat> i am a conservationist i want to preserve this earth i take care of my responsibilities in caring for this planet, but this place is going to be destroyed. There's no saving planet Earth. There is no saving planet Earth. It's doomed. 
it's absolutely doomed. You know, I've owned a lot of junk vehicles in my life. That's about what I can afford, you know. I was with my friend working on my car a number of years ago, and uh, what a piece of junk. Just trying to get it, you know, like actually up to the place where we could get it inspected again. You know, one more year type of attitude. And I'm not talking about like, you know, pulling the wool over anybody's eyes, like actually fixing everything that's wrong with it and getting it legally inspected. And my friend that was working with me stops in the middle of this chaos as we're, you know, tearing things apart and it just gets worse with everything we go through. You know, it's just like, oh, now we're going to have to replace all of that. Well, you know what? Never mind. Now we're going to do all this. And he stops and says, you know what you ought to do with this car? And I said, what? He said, you want to take the gas cap off and um, screw another whole car right onto it. This one's done. You know, what we're experiencing here on planet Earth, this planet is doomed. It's doomed. You know, that doesn't mean you just get to fling your McDonald's, you know, leftovers out the window. Some people have that attitude, like, who cares? We should care. But at the same time, people go the other direction with it. Where you're trying to worship the planet and hang on to it. This isn't our home. This is a tent, you understand? And it's all worn out. Probably every one of us has done that, you know, if you liked camping. You know, you've been out a few years and then you're like, well, right, we're going camping, you know, and you pull the tent out and, you know, hopefully you set it up in the yard before you venture off and realize this is junk. This should never be said. This goes in the trash, you know. This this thing was done. I didn't realize how bad this thing was. This planet is wrecked. It's ruined. God is going to take care of it in time. This hosts of heaven, the idea of, you know, the stars of heaven, the heavens itself being rolled up. Consider Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, Jesus speaking Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. The, the whole universe is going to go through a dramatic change. Uh, I, I am of the opinion that the earth is the center of the universe. People have a really hard time when I say that, I'm not the only one. I'm not the inventor of that concept. Th this is the place that God started creation. Here, all, all of creation is focused on the earth. I'm not talking about the solar system. I understand we rotate around the sun. The attention of God is upon this. Oh, well, what about life on other planets? Guess what? They're all under the curse of sin, too. Either the scripture's right or it's wrong, right? We all know that. All of creation fell under the curse of sin and death when Adam fell into sin in the garden. That means the entire universe is going to die because of that man's sin. And that's what we're watching happen. The, the whole universe is in the process of decay. The law of entropy affects all things, not just us here slowly creeping or rapidly creeping toward the grave. The universe is creeping toward the grave. We are seeing it come undone. Consider Revelation chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal. Behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as, fig, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty hand. Now that's two part. Great meteor showers, and I mean great meteor showers. Like when wormwood hits the planet earth, it's going to poison all the waters of the earth. That's, that's a pretty massive impact on planet Earth. Uh, simultaneously, 
the stars of the sky will be being blackened or going out. So, you know, it will bear the appearance to those experiencing it that the stars are going out, becoming blackened, and then we watch massive, you know, falling stars fall to the planet and hit the earth. It's a terrible thing that lays ahead of us. Revelation 21, verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away also. There were no more seeds. This one's done. Consider this. There's a giant cube described in the book of Revelation, which is the city of God, heaven itself. And it is coming to the earth to rest upon the earth, which will be the new earth. That cube is much, much, much larger than this earth we currently live on. The city of God needs a final resting place. The new planet's going to have to be much bigger than the one we're currently on in order to house God's city, which is going to rest upon it. Fixing your focus here is very, very short-sighted. Isaiah 34, continuing at verse 5, says, For my sword shall be bathed, and the idea is in blood, my sword shall be bathed in blood in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and all the people of my curse for judgment. Now, Edom shared the southern border with Judah and repeatedly attacked Israel throughout its history and always celebrated when others did. So God has used Edom as a symbol of those who behave in similar ways towards his children. People that attack and rejoice when God's children are attacked, God refers to them as Edom. Now here, some of that comes into play because it has the local fulfillment of in time and history, but it's also speaking of a time ahead of us where essentially Edom doesn't exist now. So that idea of Edom being anyone, any country, any individuals who attack Israel or rejoice when others do. You know, I think we understand when we talk about Babylon, that great city, it symbolically represents the organization and the cities of men and the great apostasy of religion that has been created by men. So Babylon has a, a similar symbology to it. Edom has this symbol of attack and hatred against Israel, and now God's dealing with that. Anybody who wants to behave in this way is going to fall under God's wrath. He has bathed his sword in blood in heaven. Now, that's quite a thought. The, the attack, the defense, the war, the annihilation is so complete that God can say it has been started and completed in heaven. You, you can't deny that this is going to happen. We've laid the plan, right? You think about salvation. Right? We're told that it, it was planned, organized, and developed before the foundations of the world. So before the universe was created, God had a plan for salvation, including he's going to bring to demise those who oppose the family of God. Now, in verse 6, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has sacrifice, a sacrifice in Basra, that region, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. So this uh, picture, this, this warfare, this destruction of the enemies of God, of Israel, of his chosen people, God is now summarizing it as a sacrifice. You know, you, you consider um, the sacrifices that were made, especially throughout the Old Testament, 
they were designed and carried out as a payment for sin. So as sin had occurred, God required specific things to be sacrificed. At this point, the sins that have occurred against God and his people require that this cataclysmic war take place, and God is summarizing all of that death, all of that bloodshed, all of the carcasses that are consumed in it as a great sacrifice that's made to him. It's, it's justified in the process. You know, uh, it's, it's interesting to me how a lot of humanity uh, doesn't understand how at times you know, that which is innocent must be defended with violence. It's a very violent world we live in. I I find there's something written in our heart. I read an article years ago, a young woman that was living in the deep southwest, and she came home from school and was home alone, and she heard someone at the door. And after a moment, it really sounded like they were struggling to get in the house. She found that peculiar. You know, if her parents were coming home, if her family was coming home, they have keys, they can unlock the house and come in. So she went to the head of the stairs, looked down to see who's coming in the front door, and there's two armed men who have just entered her home. She retreats into her parents' bedroom and dials 911 and loads the shotgun comes back out and warns them to leave the home and they instead charge up over the stairwell and she unleashes and lays them both dead right there in the home she's an accomplished skeet shooter her father has taught her very well and she's won state championships 15 year old girl home alone those two men both had entered the country illegally and the weapons that they had on their persons they had stolen from the man that they broke into his home the night before assaulted and killed him now they're at her home you kind of almost want to applaud you know what i'm saying when a 15 year old girl is protected in the moment of sheer violence when god unleashes his wrath here it's it's going to be a completely justified thing all of heaven is going to witness it and say just and true are your judgments there's there's not going to be any portion of it. there's not going to be any you know psychotic behavior in this of god wanting to do this you know you think about what the prophet tells us god takes no joy in the death of the wicked there's, there's nothing about this that's gleeful. It is necessary, and when it occurs and when it's done, everyone who is witness to it is going to say, that was, that was right. That was the right thing to take place. This sacrifice was necessary, right? When, when we look at the sacrifices of the Old Testament, we understand a human being was going to die, and God allowed for the sacrifice of an animal to take place in order that substitutionary atonement would allow the human being to live and the animal to die in their stead. The death that these nations have caused and introduced to God's creation brings God to the place where he's just finally saying, we have to perform this sacrifice in order to free my creation from death, this is a necessary thing. Look at verse 7. The wild oxen shall come down with them. And then I underlined the young bulls and the young bulls with the mighty bulls. Underline both of those. Their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust saturated with fatness. Again, Armageddon will be a payment for the penalty of sin. That's what we're looking at. Now, David prophesied 
about the crucifixion of Jesus as though he were seeing it from Jesus' eyes. In Psalm 22, it's verse 11 through 19. I'm going to read from 11 to 19, but particularly verse 12 is where it stands out. Verse 11 says, Do not, excuse me, be not far from me. This is as though Jesus were saying this from the cross. David wrote the psalm, For trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bowls have surrounded me. Strong bowls of Bashan have encircled me. The bowls of Bashan were known for their strength. As animals, they were known for their strength. What's interesting is there are a few references throughout the Scripture that seem to indicate that the bulls of Bashan are being used to tell us about demonic forces. So this idea that Jesus is being surrounded, it's not just the Romans. It is the Romans, but it's not just the Romans. It's, it's not just the Jews and the Jewish leader. It, it is the Jews and the Jewish leader, but not just. The idea is there's a much bigger unseen picture that's going on. The bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Psalm 22, verse 13, they gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. The young bulls, the mighty bulls, their land shall be soaked with blood, their dust saturated with fatness. Isaiah 34, verse 7. You know, it's, it's a, a much bigger battle, perhaps, than just the earthly battle. The angelic hosts clashing in the midst of this and a great victory won by God at Armageddon. <laughs> Not only just over the armies of the world, but the armies of hell themselves. Quite a picture uh, to think about. Now, 34.8 says, For it is the day, you might want to underline that, of the ven Lord's vengeance. The year, you might want to underline that, of recompense for the cause of Zion. There's a specific moment in time, and boy, in this church, you ought to know that God is very specific when he says certain things, is he not? You know, how many times have you heard me talk about Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, and the prediction given to Daniel by the angel who told him there would be 173,880 days from the order to restore and rebuild the temple until Jesus rode into uh, Jerusalem being hailed as the Messiah. You know, March 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes says, rebuild and restore, you know, Jerusalem. Uh, April 632 A.D., Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Exactly 173,880 days. Jesus said over and over and over again to the people who wanted to make him the Messiah, right? How many times have you read that they sought to make him the Messiah? They insisted he was the Messiah. They tried to, and he would repeatedly say, it is not my day. It is not my day. It is not my time. It is not my time. It is not my day. Over and over, he's holding them back because there's a specific day that's going to fulfill God's word. There is a specific day that the Lord's vengeance will be had, that the year of recompense for Zion will take place. 
God is not slow in fulfilling his promises. It feels like he is at times, is it not? As you look around and watch the news, you're just like, come on, finish it already. I, I always use the example. I, I really surrendered my life to the Lord in 1989, and that's when I began to pray, Lord, you know, return, come back. And I was longing for the return of Jesus. And then I often will ask, you know, how many people in the room have come to know the Lord since 1989? And a lot of hands go up. Had the Lord listened to me and followed my timeline, a bunch of people wouldn't have been in the kingdom. And that's what the Lord tells us. He said, don't be deceived. You know, God is not slow, but he's patient, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God is waiting for salvation. That's what he's waiting for. He's looking for those who will join him and live with him. 34.9, its streams shall be turned to pitch and its dust <laughs> into brimstone. The idea is for burning. You know, as it says there, its land shall become burning pitch. Uh, the It's interesting to me how many times we see throughout the scripture where, you know, a, a certain group of people, you know, has a, an evil intention and God uses that evil intention to bring them to the place he wants them to be. You know, I, I think of, you know, in the Old Testament, when they so wanted to kill Elijah, and then they, you know, they, uh, uh, you know, the Lord kept revealing the enemy's plans, and they finally come for that, uh, you know, invasion and the attack, and the Lord blinds them, and uh, you know, there he is saying, "Oh, well, who are you looking for?" And he says, "Oh, I'll lead you. Let's go." And he leads them right into the citadel of Israel. They're surrounded by the you know israeli army and you know everybody's freaking out about oh you know we need to kill them and the prophet says no we need to feed them he gives them that new testament sense of feed your enemies you know clothe them give them something to drink a beautiful picture of how the lord will turn circumstances these that have opposed him you know the very place that they have built and designed and made for themselves is going to become this place of incineration. You know, the the, the pitch, you know, the, the burning pitch, uh, the idea of uh, how they, especially in ancient times, would take tar or, or even, you know, like spruce or pine pitch or, you know, uh, different plants and, and they would... Uh, adhere it to cloth or to wood and light it on fire and it would burn for a very long time same concept that you know the the the, the streams shall be in you know turn into pitch and the dust into brimstone the land shall become a burning pitch it goes on it shall not be quenched night or day its smoke shall ascend forever from generation to generation it shall lie waste no one shall pass through it forever and ever. Something to think about. According to Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 16, hell is in the center of the earth currently. So all these people that want to keep and protect and restore Mother Earth, Earth is going to become the hell that they live in. Really kind of a shocking, uh, you know, oh, you want the Earth? Okay, how about the center of the Earth? where hell exists, eventually, right, hell will be cast into the lake of fire in outer darkness. As a, but currently, you know, the, the people who so love the earth and so, and I, you know, I'm not talking about the people who enjoy creation, just enjoy creation. Lots of Christians enjoy creation. I'm talking about the people who don't have a godly vision and are obsessed with, you know, living here, building a utopia, making this basically heaven. All that you love, all that you're clinging to, all that you're trying to protect, preserve, is going to become your eternal dwelling place. I, I, I find it interesting when you read Luke chapter 16 and you read the, the rich man and Lazarus and they both die, and you know, you just suddenly see the rich man in hell. 
whereas it says Lazarus was carried to paradise. I find it interesting because our natural tendency, right, is this will maybe sound, I'm just a little too abstract sometimes. Uh, we are drawn to the earth, literally by gravity itself. There's going to come a point where you lie down for the last time and you don't get up. If you belong to the Lord, he'll catch you and carry you into paradise. If not, he just all he's going to do is keep his hands out of the project and you're just going to fall straight to the place you've been headed to the whole time, hell itself. It's funny how, you know, the the burning pitch, it'll be an eternal thing. Consider Revelation chapter 14 verse 11 and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name eternity in hell this whole concept that you know it has been promoted uh, you know unfortunately even recently you know members of um you know, very popular Christian bands, uh, you know, very popular authors of best-selling Christian books, you know, promoting this idea that, you know, hell is not eternal. Um, the two most popular concepts that have been presented recently, one is, they're old, they're not new, but it, it's sort of new to the new generation. Uh, one is that, uh, yes, you go to hell, but you just sort of get burned up. You know, you're destroyed. Annihilation, you're done. You're just gone. The other concept is it's sort of like the old idea of purgatory. You go there for a while. And it stinks. It's really bad. It's just like the scriptures describe. But it, it's you get let out. You know, after, after you just realize how terrible it is, you know, I however long they imagine that to be, uh, the smoke of their torment rises forever. Not the smoke of that place, the smoke of their torment. I don't want anything to do with that. I want the grace of Jesus Christ to catch me, which it has already, and to transport me into his presence. That's that's what everybody in this room is going to experience. I know you all well enough to know we are going to the Lord. Let the Lord have lordship over your life and complete that. Then he begins in, in verse 11. It says, But the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. Now, I just want to be really clear. There are people who give great explanations to each one of these animals that's described because uh, the King James scholars really struggled to give us an accuracy to it. And as as much accuracy as we can find, you know, uh, the Greek scholars have, you know, uh, the, he, the Hebrew scholars have passed through this and, you know, given us great clarity. Then you turn around and there's another group that wants to argue with them about, no, that's not actually, not actually pelicans. It didn't mean porcupines. It meant this. It meant that. And, you know, if you're reading the King James Version, they actually put into the midst of this, you know, the unicorn, you know, it really throws everybody off. You know, it, it says the unicorn, but then turns right around and speaks of his horns in plural form. So it's an ox that's being described. Uh, he, here's my summary. I'm just going to read through the animal descriptions here and know this. Everything that's being described is supposed to be, number one, unclean to the Jews, and number two, really scary. So if you just like get that, concept in mind like literally let your heart and mind sink into the graveyard right now that's what the lord is intending to do uh speaking through isaiah is like every jewish reader would be like oh what a terrible place you know what was previously something good has become this horrific state of existence that's what's supposed to be relayed in this whatever scary animals um, you know, might fit in your mind. There are some specific things in it, but that's sort of the gist. So the pelican, the porcupine shall possess it. Also the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. You know, don't think bright, sunshiny day. 
at all. Think like night and curling smoke and fog and, and, you know, just like, oh, you wouldn't want to be in this place at all. Really, that's the picture that they're trying to relay. You know, we, we read through it and, you know, some of this is lost. It, it really is supposed to be the, you know, the horrifying thought of what was, you know, previously occupied by human beings and, um, you know, a place of celebration and life and has become this literally like a haunt that you would never want to visit. So the, the pelican, the porcupine shall possess it. Also the owl and the raven shall dwell in it and he shall stretch it out, stretch out over it, the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. And they shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but none shall be there. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall come up in its palaces, nettles, brambles, and its fortresses. It shall be a habitation of jackals, a courtyard of ostriches, literally owls. Okay, so, you know, think of, you know, like, you know, a city that's, maybe you've seen in a movie that's like, it's night and it's like post-apocalyptic. You know, this, you can tell people used to live here in numbers and now it's just scary animals and unoccupied. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals and the wild goat shall bleat to its companion. You know, the, the scary no noises off in the distance. Also, the night creature shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. That last statement is the female demonic. How about that? That which is a demon and female. Pretty weird to think about. Maybe, maybe, you know, you might not want to go too far with that thought and discussion. Maybe it's the idea of a demonic sound that is female in its origin, like a screaming woman, something like that. I mean, it's, it's really trying to paint the idea of you would not want to be in this place. Scary, frightening. So, you know, that which, you know, previously belonged to them, it's become a place of burning pitch and brimstone and all of these unclean, horrible things and sounds uh, that are there. This, you know, night creature shall rest there and find for herself a place to rest. There the arrow snake shall make her nest and lay eggs and hatch and gather them under her shadow. There also shall the hawks be gathered, every one with her mate. Search, what a statement verse 16 is, from the book of the Lord. And read, not one of these shall fail, not one shall lack her mate, for my mouth has commanded it. And his capital H on the pronoun spirit, capital S on spirit, has gathered them. God is accomplishing this. Nothing about this is going to be unaccomplished. The day will come where our eyes will witness this having been fulfilled, and we'll all look back at this night where we sat and read this one more time out of Isaiah, and then we'll go, wow, no doubt. Everything the Lord said, that is a scary place. And it has become, you know, desolate. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They, they're like an accuracy of measurement is what's being implied there. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. All of these creatures, all of this horrific sense. What previously belonged to to those who are like Edom, who, who attacked and hated Israel, this is going to be their end. Eternal burning in a place of horrific existence where you would not, you know, just shake your soul to the core. You know, if you're sitting here right now thinking none of those things will scare me, that's because you're in Christ. You have no fear of death. This, this is literally the idea of a person who is Christless 
is facing an eternity in hell and their whole existence is going to sound something like that. No, thank you. you know, I was literally asked this past week by an inmate in a jail ministry. He said, I don't know, I need your advice. Which would be better for me? To go to heaven and experience whatever it is God has or to go to hell and at least be with my parents who are already there. And I said, man, we need to look at some things. You don't know what hell is. You don't know what it's like. He's got a cartoon version in his mind. We talked our way through it, and he wasn't convinced when we were done. He's basing his understanding upon the opinions of people that he's talked to throughout his lifetime. Not, right? What did we just read? Search from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these shall fail. This is an absolute thing. I, I, I want to slap the authors of these new books and these new songs and these ideas that promote the idea that, oh, you know, you don't really have to worry about hell. You know, in the end, love wins. No. No, not as they would describe. Love wins now when you surrender to Christ and he saves you from all of that. Where you don't ever have to experience it. Christ holds a future for us. Let's look at chapter 35. Beginning at verse 1. It says, <clears throat> The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. See? You've got to turn the page, right? <laughs> Things can get really dark at times. You read through the scripture, you get a vision of the future, and you can just be left with a dark, broken heart. You've got to look all the way to God's eternal plan. And this is what he's about to present to us in this short chapter, a very sweet picture of his love, his capability, his restoration. So, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. This, this is God telling us that you know, when Jesus steps on the scene and rules from his throne, he's going to restore a fruitfulness and a life to this planet, to creation, to existence that only he can accomplish, that only his presence, only his touch will allow. You know, he talks about here the glory of Lebanon. One of the biggest glories of Lebanon was their cedars. You know, 200 feet tall, straight pole, beautiful grain build, you know, the, the home of David and just the glory of the craftsmanship and all that was involved in it. You know, I've, I've talked before, we have this timber frame builder uh, that's in, you know, renting space in the building uh, just behind us. I mean, you might not even be aware of that, but these Quonset huts out back and stuff, you know, he builds world-class Asian construction timber frame homes. All of his cedar comes from Alaska. So, um, like, you've seen, you know, like log homes, and you know how the logs, like, twist, and then they'll have splits in them years later. None of his do that, because what we see commonly around here is taken from North American lumber. And, uh, you know, the, the center cut, the, the heart of the tree is very often part of the beam. You, know, you see a big beam, and you're like, wow, that's impressive. Okay. What he builds, none of the beams are taken from the center of the tree. They're cutting out 12-inch beams that are the side cut. The Alaskan, the Alaskan cedars are that big. So, you know, when you've got a tree that's five foot, uh, you know, through, six foot through, they're taking, imagine that, Dave, a beam that's, you know, 15 feet long, and it's taken from the side cut, just clear cedar. No checking, no twisting. To it at all. Magnificent, beautiful. Jesus is going to restore that magnificence to creation. 
He's going to touch the wilderness and make it blossom in a way we can't even imagine. You know, the glory, you guys, that we don't even understand that's locked up in creation that's currently under the curse. I mean, if you can take seeds of wheat out of a, an Egyptian pyramid that are 2,000 years old and germinate them and grow a crop of wheat, that's amazing. The DNA that's locked up inside that little seed that's just so parched, it would, you know, if you squeeze it hard enough, it'd probably shatter. You know, the moisture, the darkness cause it to sprout. What is Jesus going to yield back to us? It'll be amazing to see what he does with this creation, the glory that he restores. All these nations, Lebanon, Carmel, Sharon, you know, the things that they were known for in beauty, Jesus is going to bring them about. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. All of creation is going to experience this healing. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer to worship God. Our intention, our design, our intended design was worship. Our eyes will see in a way they've never seen before. Our ears will hear in a way that, you know, our, our legs, our bodies will respond in a way, you know, uh, those that are uh, literally uh, disabled and those of us who are just, you know, impaired because of, the condition of this world, all of that's going to be done away with. Now, it's astonishing to me. I now have bifocals. I should be using them right now. Instead, I've just increased all my font on my printout to 16. You know what I'm saying? Eventually, it's going to be like in the beginning, you know, and just one page at a time. I put my bifocals on. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Wow, that's so detailed. You know, I can actually read this article now. Wow, I had no idea there was so much detail on that flower. What will it be like when Christ gives us his intended vision? You know, the, the glory that is ahead of us. But don't be fearful. It's coming. It's promised. Read the book. It's sure. This passage tells us we can trust in it. The lame shall leap like a deer tongue of the dumb will sing everybody's going to sing in tune <laughs> we're all going to worship the lord nobody's going to be flat it's going to be great for waters shall burst forth in the wilderness streams in the desert the parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of jackals where each lay there shall be grass with reeds and rushes our high, a highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. And this is the idea of an elevated roadway. Okay, you know, you think highway, you may, may maybe you're thinking like eight lanes of paying tolls, or you know, this, the idea is that the way of travel the Lord will have for us will be elevated spiritually. You know, follow what he says: the unclean. Uh, shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks to the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Right? Where we read that during the millennial reign, ten of us uh, Gentiles will take hold of the robe of one Jewish man and say, "Lead us to His throne." Essentially, lead us to the Messiah. Right? You know, take us to Jerusalem. Show us the worship. Uh, the, the travel will be for spiritual purposes. You know, what we will be doing. You think about how crazy travel is getting right now. I mean, go any level you want to. It's dangerous to be a pedestrian. It is. It, it's dangerous to drive your car on the road. God help you if you have to, you know, travel anywhere on an airplane. The travel will become holy. Literally. The purposes will be holy. 
what we will be doing during that time. I don't know if we're going to still have airplanes or you know what it'll be, but but the idea is that when we travel, it will be for highly elevated spiritual things. That'll be great. Don't you like? Isn't a lot of you know, especially your distance travel, nothing but a drag. Just like. <laughs> You know, the travel's a drag, the destination's a drag, the company is a drag. You're just like, man, there's very few things in life where you're like, wow, that really lifted me up. <laughs> I'm so much better off for having traveled. That's, that's pretty rare. You know, it occurs, but generally speaking, when it does occur, it's because we're doing something spiritual. We're headed to a conference. We're going to share the gospel with somebody. We're doing, you know, the travel right now, it's pretty low as far as its purposes, its destination, and what it accomplishes. So, you know, even somebody who's foolish will not go astray. So no need for GPS. No lion shall be there. That's always good. Nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. Awesome. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and singing shall flee away. You guys, when I went to Israel and I got so sick, many, many people contacted me and said, oh, I can't think of anything more terrible. And I got to tell you, I got to be honest, when I first started experiencing the vasculitis, I did sink into that place where like this has got to be the worst thing in the world I've ever experienced. I've invested all of this into getting here and now this is my circumstance. And I was sitting there in the hotel room while everybody else is out on tour and I realized that's, that's the Sea of Galilee right there. I'm looking at the Sea of Galilee. I'm I'm literally in you know in locations that Jesus walked and talked and touched. And I have my Bible right here and I can pray. And all of that just disappeared. And I got to go experience a few things, and literally I just mean like a few. But I am not disappointed. I will have to go back, you know. <laughs> There was that thought of, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime trip when I went. Now it's like, no, I have to go back. There's a whole bunch I missed, so i got to go back. Probably have to take a boat. I can't fly at 30,000 feet. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. But anyway, the Lord gives us an elevated experience, whatever condition we're in, if we'll include him in that circumstance. You know, this is the fulfillment of all things. You know, the ransomed of the Lord, the redeemed are walking there. They're going to Zion. They are singing together. And the worship of the Lord is exactly what they have their hearts and minds fixed on. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Every Tears shall be wiped away, right? God in his goodness is going to accomplish all these things. And, and once again, search from the book of the Lord and read, not one of these shall fail. What a blessing in its promise. Whether it be the condemnation of the wicked who are opposed to us or the promise of his millennial kingdom and our experience in it. It's written in his book and it's going to take place. Amen? Yeah. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are, again, a grateful people, blessed by your work. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to fix our eyes on your positivity. So very easy for us to just get caught up in the mundane day-to-day -day workings. Beyond that, we can actually sink 
into the despair of hopelessness that the world is constantly portraying. Help us to be men and women who not only have you as our Savior, but truly are submitted to your mastery, you being our Lord. Rule over us. Reign over us. Guide us. Accomplish what you want to in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.